I'm a big podcast fan. Uh, when I was younger, I liked to listen to music, and then I got old and boring and like NPR, and I listen to podcasts all the time, and like that's my thing now. Uh, and uh, one of the podcasts I, I listen to is kind of like the silly thing. Every week, they um, kind of like try to make compete different podcasts uh, bits kind of like of a movie to make what's the best or like what's the best western what's the best movie about zombies what's the best like you know person wearing red shoes you know west western in the 70s the answer is always clean it's what's without okay so kind of like different things and a couple weeks ago they were doing one about the the best movie about revenge and the reason is because john wick 4 is coming out the last great american hero that we have keanu reeves beating the ever-living daylights about anybody else it's incredible so they were doing this this podcast on it and as you're talking through the movies, first of all, you realize how many movies are about revenge that you don't realize they're about revenge. But also, these are like some pretty like best-selling movies. Like think of the Batman movies. Think of The Godfather. Uh, Carrie, like you can make an argument. The Lion King is a revenge movie. Bambi, revenge movie, right? Like, like you can start going down the rest. All these movies are really about revenge. And I, and I get to thinking that, you know, the reasons they're popular, obviously, they're action movies, they're, they're, they're fun. But, but I wonder if part of the reason why these movies are so popular is because uh, many of us, maybe most of us, have some revenge fantasies of our own, right? And there's this person that, that you know exactly who I'm talking about right now, that if you didn't go to jail, <laughs> if nobody found out, you know? But... Anyway, we can go to jail, so we watch the movies instead. And all, and I'm telling you all this because today we're actually going to be talking about this idea of revenge and what the Bible has to say about it. So before I jump into that, would you guys mind praying with me as we step into this time? Um, God, uh, we come before you today, truly believing that you have something to say to us, that your spirit is moving and speaking into our lives. Uh, and I ask that we will be able to have ears to hear and eyes to see what you're trying to say. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we are doing this series called Dealing with Detours. And to kind of like navigate through a series, we're looking at the life of this guy named Joseph in the Bible who has every single detour you can think of thrown at his life. And yet, God is able to use him in a great way. And last week, we ended up that Joseph was in jail for a crime that he didn't commit. And through this series of events, ends up becoming the second most powerful person in the Egyptian empire. And his job in, 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 in that role is uh, they know that there's going to be seven years of abundance and plenty, and then that's going to be followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph is literally brought on to manage and steward the resources of the seven years of plenty so that when the seven years of famine come, the people of Egypt have food to eat. And that's where we step in today. So Genesis chapter 42 verse 1 says... When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. So Joseph's 10 older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain, but Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother Benjamin go with them for fear some harm might come to him. 
So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food for the famine was in Canaan as well. So Joseph goes into power and then the scene changes and we're back with Jacob and his family. And what turns out is that this famine, it's so widespread that it reaches Cana and now there's a shortage of food. As a society, we have zero experience recently with shortages of any sort, right? We've had enough toilet paper, we had enough chicken, we have enough uh, microchips for new cars, we've had enough baby formula, we have no idea what it's like to be looking for something that you can't find, right? That's what's going on, and through the grapevine, the word reaches Jacob that actually in Egypt there's enough food. So, Verse 6, since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. From the land of Cana, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him, and he remembered the dreams he'd had about them many years before. He said to them, you are spies. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. Now, if you were here last week, we look at how when Joseph comes into power, he marries an Egyptian woman that has two children, and his first son, I want to remind you how he names it. So this is last chapter, chapter 41, verse 51. Joseph... Name his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. That's a lot of meaning for like a three-syllable name, right? But anyway, so he names him Manasseh, which apparently means all this long thing. And, and the point is that apparently Joseph thinks that he's finally moved on. Joseph reaches power, and he has this brand new life, and everything is great, and his first kid, and he says, you know what? Things are great. I have moved on. I've passed all my issues. I'm good to go. Except that as we're reading right now, it kind of looks like he hasn't forgotten that hard or that much about what had happened, because what follows, and I just kind of like summarize the chapters, is this long back and forth where Joseph literally starts mentally torturing his brothers, okay? He accuses them that they're spies. He throws them in jail. Then he lets them go, and he says, I'm going to keep one of you in jail, but the rest of you have to get, go get your younger brother, so I believe that you're telling the truth. He hides, the, they, they pay for the food, and he hides the money that they pay for the food in the sacks of grain. It's, he's messing with them a lot, right? It's like a soap opera. And, and the text it's sort of ambiguous as to why Joseph is doing all this. Now, there's this particular section, kind of like sandwich in here, that I think gives us a little bit of light into what's going on. So, just Genesis 42, chapter 21. Verse 21. Speaking among themselves, they said, these are the brothers of Joseph, clearly we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life. This is a new detail we didn't have. That when they throw him in that cistern, Joseph begs him, begs him to save him. But we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked. But you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, 
They didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. Then he chose Simeon from them and had him tied up right before their eyes. Joseph's brothers, even though they don't know that this is Joseph, somehow they feel that this is kind of like a sort of revenge that God is taking on them, that is some sort of payback. And we know that Joseph is still emotionally invested in this because when he hears his brothers talk about it, he breaks down and weeps. Now, summarize the whole passage. Eventually, the brothers convince Jacob to send Benjamin back with them. He finds Benjamin, and now remember, Joseph, Benjamin is one full brother, so he wants to be with him. So what he, Joseph does is that he hides his silver cup. Now, the Egyptian people are very superstitious. So because Joseph had the capacity to interpret dreams that God had given him, the Egyptian people thought that he did it through the cup. So he's like, the silver cup that for the Egyptian people is like super important, right? He hides it in Benjamin's sack of food. And then as they're leaving, he kind of like rushes in with, 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 with some armed guards and basically opens the bag and says, accuses Benjamin of stealing from him. And he's going to take Benjamin back captive. And Benjamin's brother Judah kind of like steps in and says, don't do it. Take me. This is where the chapter that we're reading ends. It's a really weird story. Because up until now, Joseph has been a nice guy, right? Like Joseph is the hero of the story. Joseph is the one that remains faithful to God. Joseph is the one that's able to, you know, uh, look past all of the issues that he had and believe in God and keep serving him and eventually gets raising him to this place of power. And now Joseph is a bully. The last two chapters, Joseph is just bullying his brothers. Now, the story doesn't end here. And next week, we're actually going to look at what Joseph is really after. Uh, but I think that the point remains. It's hard to believe that Joseph isn't messing with his siblings at least a little bit as payback for what they did to him. I don't think that it's a coincidence that in the previous chapter, Joseph names his son Manasseh, and he's saying that he has forgotten all about his family. And then the very next chapter, the brothers show up, and all of this family drama springs back up. We know that it still hurts him because we've seen him break down and cry. And who would blame him? I have a younger sister, and if she sold me to slavery and told everybody that knew me that I was dead, I would want some payback too, right? Like everybody would. It's, it's, it's a normal thing to feel. Now, I think that there's some lessons for us in here. Uh, that on the many lessons that we can get and we've been looking at from the life of Joseph, there is something in this chapter about how we deal with the emotions that we have towards the people that have hurt us. At the core of this series of dealing with it, there's this one idea, that life never works out as we think it's gonna work out, right? Like whatever dream for your life you had when you were in high school or when you went to college, that's not what's happened. Your life has taken all sorts of detours. Some of those detours are your fault. Some of the detours you knew what you were doing was wrong, you didn't listen and you went on your way and then you've experienced the consequence of that. But some of the detours you've experienced are the fault of somebody else. You went into business with a friend that you thought you could trust and turns out that you couldn't trust this person and they went away, took the money and it set you back financially 10 years. 
You were in this relationship that you thought was going to lead into marriage, and you spent five years of your life with this person, and then the relationship fell apart, and you felt like you wasted your time and you were set back. You got married to somebody that you thought was going to be faithful to you for the rest of your life, and that didn't happen. There are details in life that happen that are not our fault, are the, the fault or the consequence of somebody else's sins and mistakes. And the problem is this. For us to move forward, for us to get past those detours, to deal with our detours that we're looking at this series, it's not only a matter of recovering from whatever that adverse situation is. It's not like, okay, they set me back financially. I need to rebuild my savings. That's a part of it. Like my career got behind and now I have to like work a little harder to go ahead. It's not only that. In order to truly move forward, we have to deal with the feelings that we have towards the people that have hurt us. And chances are that if you are a red-blooded human, some of those feelings are feelings of revenge. The part of what you want is for those people to get what's coming to them. For those people to get what they deserve, for payback, for justice to be done on the people that have hurt us. And maybe you have experienced yourself, right? Like you have this terrible thing that's happened that was not your fault. And as a consequence, you were deeply hurt. And maybe it was months or years ago. And it's still that way because this thing. We want to take revenge. And if we don't want to go to jail and we say, okay, slashing this person's tires, probably not the, best, the smartest idea, right? What happens is that those desires and feelings of revenge kind of like fester in us. We start stewing in them, and what they turn into is something that the Bible calls bitterness. Their feeling or unaddressed feelings of revenge turn into bitterness. Uh, there's a, kind of like a behavioral scientist that did a study of how people experience bitterness, and he called it uh, post-traumatic bitterness disorder, kind of like PTSD. <laughs> And, and, and his idea was, you know, like in PTSD, you basically, whenever there's a certain trigger, you relive your trauma. Yeah? You relive the thing that happened to you. And he's saying, that happens to people with bitterness. And I've seen it happen, right? Like they, they mention the name of that person that did the one thing, and you can see like they flinch a little bit, and the voice changes. That, that, that memory on, on social media from three years ago comes back, and you remember what happened, and you feel yourself Kind of like change. Unresolved feelings of revenge will turn into bitterness. Um, I don't know if you guys are uh, probably familiar with uh, Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela was kind of like the first president of South Africa until it, under its current uh, like government structure. And before that, he was in prison for 27 years, kind of like as a consequence of his fight against apartheid. And when he became president, he established something that was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the idea of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was that if the people of South Africa were going to move forward, they had to find a way of dealing with all of the human rights abuses and all the things that had happened before. So they had to kind of like dig into that. But it wasn't just designed to just have retribution or just get back at people. He's trying to find a way that they could talk through it and, and, and help the nation heal. And reflecting on why he came up with, 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 with that, he talks about his own experience of feeling, and this is him talking about the day that he leaves prison. He says, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead me to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, 
I'd still be in prison. Nelson Mandela understood something that the writers of the Bible knew, by the way, that desire for revenge will poison us, turn into bitterness, and keep us prisoners. This is the writer of Hebrews talking, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. This is a vine uh, from Asia called Kutsu. And uh, kutsu was introduced in the United States in 1876. And it was actually promoted for many years uh, by the Soil Conservation Service as a great tool to fight, to fight soil erosion. So for like 20, 30 years, like the government was kind of like pushing like, you know, if you have soil erosion in the South particularly, you should plant this vine, it would help with it. What they didn't know is that kutsu is actually a vine that grows incredibly fast, incredibly out of control. So um, once it's established in the soil, it can grow at the rate of one foot per day, and a mature vine can go as long as 100 feet. So like, take, uh, there's parts in the south that to this day you will see it. Like, it was called the, the vine that ate the south, right? This is what the writers of Hebrews is talking about, that bitterness poisons everything else. Why? Because we can't compartmentalize our emotions. You cannot just say, okay, this person betrayed me, this person let me down, and it hurt me, and I'm going to let that in this pocket, right? What happens is that those feelings spill over into how you treat other people, to how you treat your children, how you treat your friends, into how you relate to other person in this same system. Maybe, you know, a, a, past, a, a past relationship hurt you, and guess what? It makes it harder to trust the next person, right? Because you're thinking, well, what if they also betray me? What if they also hurt me? Unaddressed feelings of revenge that turn into bitterness, poison us, and take over our whole lives. It becomes this thing that you're carrying with you. We have a word for it, right? We say baggage, right? We say, oh, this person has all this baggage from this past relationship. And, and the writer of Hebrews is just making the point that if we don't deal with it, it's going to take over the whole of our lives, and I think that that's something that we're seeing in the life of Joseph. That somehow he hasn't addressed these feelings and all of a sudden they start kind of like popping up. If, if you read in the midst of this, you know, whatever is going on, whatever reason Joseph has for what he's doing, he's making his siblings suffer. And by consequence, he's making his father suffer because they go back and they tell his dad, you know, your one son is already in prison and we have to bring your other son. And the father kind of has this melt that's like, you're going to kill me. Like, you're going to take in everything that matters to me. It's this, this very uh, toxic situation in the family. The, the, the unaddressed thing that has happened here, it's poisoning everything. Now, so I told you, this is not where the story ends. And if you want to find out what happens next, well, come back next week, right? And by the way, invite somebody because it's Easter. It's going to be a great day. But as the story is right now, we're left in this sort of ambiguous place that we don't know what Joseph is going to do. But I also think it, we should take it as a, a, as a moment to make us confront the same questions about our own lives. When we find ourselves in a life theater because of someone else's doing, how do we move on from that? Do we seek revenge? Do we let bitterness poison us? Or is there a different way of moving 
on. There's this passage in the Gospel of John. I want to read to you. It has nothing to do with the sermon except for one line. John chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men trying, lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? Friends, what, what I want us to consider this morning is maybe some of you have those unaddressed feelings of revenge towards somebody because of the terrible thing that they did to you. And I'm not here to minimize what happened. I'm not here to tell you that you should just you know, be the bigger person and move on. All I'm asking you today is the same thing that Jesus asked in that verse. Would you like to get well? By the way, this is the thing. If we don't deal with those feelings, let's say we deal with this. Let's say we actually enact revenge. Do you think that's going to make it better? Uh, between, in between services, I was greeting people outside, and somebody came up to me kind of like to talk about the sermon. She says, you know, I've worked in the criminal justice system for uh, you know, my whole life, and one of the things I realized is when I'm working with victims that a lot of times, even when convictions happen, they don't feel, they thought they would feel different. It still has to be done, it's still justice, but it, it didn't really give them the closure that they thought they wanted. It's a much more complicated thing. What if there was another way of dealing with this? Let me read you this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. The, the Apostle Paul is talking to this church that has this mixture of Jewish and Gentile people that are always kind of like a short throats. And he's saying, you know what we need to deal with? We need to deal with bitterness. And he goes on to explain the core way in which you get rid of bitterness. Verse 32, he says, instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Paul says the way in which you get rid of bitterness is through forgiveness. And he actually makes a point. He says, and by the way, you know you have an idea of how this works? Because this is what God has done for us. We've seen it happen. He's saying you should forgive one another in the same way that God has forgiven you. In other words, the example of how to forgive is found in God. And how has God forgiven us? Well, he tells us So the next Chapter, first verse, verse one. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Now, let me give you a little spoiler. Next week, we're going to be talking about forgiveness, right? Like, where else will we go? Like, we have revenge, and Easter is coming, and the cross. So guess what? Chad's going to be talking about that. So I'm not going to go in depth on that topic, but I want to leave you today with one idea that I think is going to be helpful as you start working through this. You know, because we're, we're, we're Paul is saying, look at how God forgives us, and he says, it's through Jesus. Now, we're, we're getting... In, on the way to Easter, we're very close to Easter, and in Easter, what we remember is that Jesus' Jesus' death and resurrection, and at the core of the Easter story is the idea that the death and resurrection of Christ is the means of our forgiveness. And if Paul is right, if we get this story right, if we understand it, 
it opens up the key for us to understand forgiveness in our own lives. Forgiveness is hard for a number of reasons, as we're going to learn next week from Chad. But one of the main reasons why forgiveness is hard is because it feels wrong. And the reason why it feels wrong is because it feels like if we forgive someone, it means that what they did was not that big of a deal. That it didn't matter too much, that it wasn't too wrong. Which, by the way, it's the same dilemma that God faces when it comes to forgiveness. Let me read you this passage. This is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. By the way, this is God's, the, 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 large, the, the, more, the strongest passage in the Bible where God describes himself. If God wants to say, hey, what's your, your CV? This is what God would say. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. This, by the way, is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Like over and over, the passage is going to come up the most that people are going to refer to back is this passage. Because in the Jewish understanding, this is God describing himself. This is the, the, the closest thing the Bible does in describing who God is. And I want you to think about these two ideas. Right? At the beginning, God says, I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness and compassion and mercy. And then in verse 7, he says these two things. He says, I'm full of forgiveness and I forgive. And then he says, but I do not excuse the guilty. Here lies the dilemma. On one hand, God, if he's a good God at all, has to deal with all of our brokenness. He has to enact justice. Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. On the other hand, this guy is introducing himself, describing himself as a loving God, as a forgiving God. He's saying that forgiveness is in his nature. And the question is, well, how can God negotiate both? How can God be just and deal with all of our sin and brokenness and also be true to his loving and forgiving nature? Does God just get over it? And the problem of God just getting over it and pretending nothing happened is that the real justice that needs to be addressed in the world goes unaddressed. Just this week, we saw another terrible tragedy in our country. And all of us have these feelings of, how can this happen? Something ought to be done about it, don't we? We see the injustices. And when things happen to us, it's the same deal. It's like, if I forgive, does that mean that the terrible thing that this person did to me doesn't matter? That it doesn't count? And forgiving feels like an insult. It feels like a slap in the face. Because someone's saying, like, get over all these terrible things that were done to you. That would be an even greater injustice. But then God also says that he's loving. How does God negotiate that? Well, you can punish a sin. And then if you punish a sin, the problem is if you're loving and forgiving, well, that goes a little bit against your nature. But then if you just get over it, you're also not being just. The only way that you could do this is that somehow there's a way of punishing the sin and forgiving at the same time. Wonder what, how you do that, right? In the Old Testament, the way you see that, done that a little bit is through the sacrifice system, right? God tells we're going to put the sin in this animal. And this, the animal is going to take like, the effects of the sin. But the thing is that real forgiveness is, has a cost. Tim Keller says that real forgiveness is costly suffering. And, and the reason why he says that is because he says, imagine that, you know, I, I see Jim Prince. I'm going to use Jim as an example. So imagine, imagine Jim needs 100 bucks 
and because I'm this super well-paid pastor, I have $100 to give to Jim, right? <laughs> Staff reviews are coming out. Anyway, uh, so I give, I, I give, I give Jim my, my $100, and, and, and Jim comes back next week and says, you know what, I had to use it to buy uniforms for the softball team, which, by the way, we need strikers, so if anybody, if, if anybody uh, can throw a good pitch, let us know. Anyway, Jim says, I don't have the money. I'm not going to pay back to you. Sorry. And because... Jim is my boss, and I know where my bread is buttered. I say, Jim, that's okay, perfectly fine. I'll, I'll, I'll take the hit for that, right? But $100 are not going to magically appear on my account. I'm absorbing the cost. I'm taking the hit for that. Forgiving is taking the hit. The problem is that for us, that's almost impossible to do. Because the hit is this terrible, awful thing that was done to us. What if there was someone that could take the hit for us? So Jesus shows up and John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What Jesus is doing is that Jesus is taking the punishment of sin, the wrath of God, the revenge upon himself. God is saying the only way that I can forgive you is if I take the pain unto myself. And that's what's happening at the cross. The apostle uh, Paul, uh, kind of like thinking through this in the book of Romans, describes it. It's like the most succinct way of this. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did it to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. What God is saying is, I am going to be just and I'm going to be forgiven. And the way I'm going to do that is we're going to punish myself, my son. That in him the suffering of the world is going to be dealt with. And the thing that I want to leave you with, with uh, this morning is this. Um, we think of that in terms of the relationship of humanity and God. But what I want you to consider is this. If the sacrifice of Jesus is enough to pay for the penalty of all of our sin before God, would it be enough to pay for the penalty of the sins of the people that hurt you and that you want to take revenge on before you. On the aftermath of World War II, this uh, Lutheran pastor in Berlin wrote a play. It was called The Sign of Jonah. And the idea of the play is kind of like set on this street in West Berlin, and it's basically people asking themselves questions about the Holocaust. Basically, how could this happen? Nobody knows. And, and then, like, they start asking each other in the play. They start asking people in the audience, do you know that was going on? And everybody's basically, they're going to play. I had no idea this was happening. And then as the play kind of, like, continues, you start turning out that people did know. And say, well, I knew something was going on, but, you know, I was just kind of, like, working in the store. The soldiers there were doing it. So I just kind of, like, kept my mouth shut. And then the soldier says, I was just following orders. My boss said that to me. And then the boss said, and in the play, they basically pass the buck all the way up to God. 
And they say it was God's fault. So they put God on trial. <laughs> and the sentence on God is this. Let God become a human being. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him be deprived of his rights. Let him be homeless, hungry, thirsty. Let him die and lose his son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. That play was performed at Union Seminary in New York many, many years ago. And the story goes that the first time the play was performed, the play ends. And nobody in the audience applauded. Not because they didn't like it, but because they didn't know what to do with it. Because what he was saying is, God is not, Jesus is not only taking upon himself our sins before God. He's taking upon himself our sins before against each other. All of the terrible things that we've done to one another are taking Jesus. This is how in theology what we call substitutionary atonement. That God is atoning for our sins before God. And in substitutionary atonement, what happened is Jesus laying on the cross, literally facing the punishment. The Bible says, God made Jesus sin who knew no sin. And Jesus before his father, and he says what? Forgive them. Because I'm taking the penalty. It's just for you to forgive them because the sin has been punished and it has been dealt with in me. For God, that is enough. It's sufficient to cover our sins. My friends, what if Jesus is looking at us this morning, hanging on a cross, bleeding to death, Looking at you. And that thing that happened to you, that terrible, awful thing that happened to you, that terrible, awful thing that he did to you, that she did to you, those terrible ways in which they hurt you. And you look at you and say, I know that you want to take revenge. I know that if you, if you wouldn't get arrested, you would, do, you would pay them back for all they did. And, and Jesus is asking you, do you want to get well? Because if you want to get well, will my suffering suffice? It's my pain enough for you to forgive them. Uh, I'm a big fan of Pilgrim's Progress. My, my dad had like this illustrated version when I was a kid. And I have this memory clear of this one image. I had to go online to find it. Uh, Pilgrim, the, 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 the main character in, in, in the book, he's carrying this bag. And the bag represents kind of like all his sins, right? And half the book is carrying this bag everywhere he goes. And it's heavy and weighs him down until he gets to the cross. There's this moment where he looks to the cross and he falls on his knees and the back comes off from him. And now you see, in the book, that's, that's his sense, right? But what I want to think, consider today is your unresolved desire of, for revenge for the thing that he did to you, that she did to you, that they did to you, your bitterness, it's weighing you down. And this morning, Jesus asks you, do you want to get well? And if you do, the first step for that, the first step to deal with the hurt, with the pain, with the, with the punishment, with the justice for what happened to you, 
What Jesus is saying to you is it has been enacted in him.